This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of December 12, 2022, here are some top stories. Every Saturday for the past couple of months in the heart of Old Town Scottsdale, a lively and vocal group of protesters has gathered to send a message to the world. Phil Latzman recently visited them to find out what the ruckus is all about. And the importance of that message is being delivered 7,500 miles away. Yes, we are here every Saturday, rain or shine. Uh, we, are, we were here in the middle of a thunderstorm a few weeks ago. Uh, our message is too important. We're here supporting the people of Iran and being their voice. They have no voice. Sam is with the Scottsdale-based Iranian American Society of Arizona. They help promote these weekly events, which are organized by Arizona for a free Iran. Our voices reach them back home and, and provide them with reassurance and comfort and energy that the world is watching and we're on your side and we're going to be here as long as you're out there. We're over here too. There are an estimated 25,000 Iranian Americans living in the Phoenix area. Many of the families came to the states in the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Shahram was one of them. He says things are now as bad as they've been since. Well, what's been disturbing is the exaggerations and escalations of the uh, human rights. The, uh, you know, the government is standing against the human rights of Iran, especially when it comes to women, to children, to the minority religion, and on and on. Women are among the most vocal at this protest. Shokra, who is Jewish, also came following the revolution four decades ago. Change the regime because the regime is not good for everybody. No for my Jewish, no for Muslim, no for anybody. It's not just a, a woman uh, protest. This is Iranian protest. The recent protests, which began in Tempe in September, are in reaction to the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who died under suspicious circumstances while in the custody of Iran's religious morality police after refusing to wear a hijab, a Muslim headscarf, in public. Two years before I escaped, I got arrested too. The same thing. That could be me. That could be my sister. That can be anyone. That's Nina. She escaped Iran nine years ago. Because of this regime, because they wanted to kill me and my family. Thank God I'm alive, but there are so many are dying right now. And I feel them because I've been through that and I could escape, but they can't. Nina says there are no basic human rights in Iran, especially for women who are treated like property. People talk about rights. There is no rights there. People talk about human rights, basic human rights. There's nothing there. They literally look at you as a thing. Mimi holds a sign that reads, Down with Dictator. She hopes those observing their protests can tell the difference between the people of Iran and the oppressive government there. We want to be the voice of the people of Iran, people who have no internet, who uh, have been always categorized as terrorists in the world, where it's actually the regime that is the terrorist, not the people. The U.S. pulled out of an Obama-era nuclear deal with Iran back in 2018 and reinstated sanctions on the country, which now covers some of Iran's financial sector. But Mimi says even that is not enough. 
this regime has gone too far for too long and it needs to be stopped. One of the things that, you know, we keep meeting with senators and Congress people and one of the things that they always ask us, they're like, oh, we are with you. You know, we're standing with the people of Iran. We are tired of hearing that, that they're with us. We want them to do something. Until something does change, Sam and his group plan to show up every Saturday to give a voice to the voiceless in his homeland on the other side of the planet. That's what we're going to do. We're going to be here until uh, they can breathe free air and dance in the street and enjoy their life. A more silent protest will take place Sunday evening with the candlelight vigil at the Arizona Persian Cultural Center. In Scottsdale, Phil Latzman, KJZZ News. In business news, when you're cruising west on Interstate 10 and heading into California, you'll pass through a small structure that sits just beyond the Arizona border. Someone in uniform will either wave you through or ask a few questions about what you're bringing into the state before letting you pass. But when returning to Arizona, no stop is required. Through our Q&AZ project, one listener asked, why isn't there a checkpoint when you drive back to Arizona? What are the checkpoints checking for? And why doesn't Arizona care what's coming from California? Christina Van Otterloo has the answers. The small checkpoint sitting on the I-10 is the Blythe Border Station, run by California's Department of Food and Agriculture, or the CDFA. It's one of 16 stations scattered across the state's borders with Oregon, Nevada, and Arizona. The CDFA calls them the first line of defense against pests and invasive species. Arizona doesn't have any interstate checkpoints of its own, but it used to. And Mark Killian, director of Arizona's Department of Food and Agriculture, says the state never should have gotten rid of them. In my opinion, it was a very big mistake uh, because those checkpoints were good at stopping invasive pests from getting into our state, particularly like the fire ant and other kinds of uh, bugs and problems. And it also kept people from bringing infected uh, livestock into our state. In the mid-80s, Arizona had 14 inspection stations around the state. But budget cuts in 2008 shuttered interstate checkpoints for motor vehicles, leaving the only remaining agricultural inspection facilities in Phoenix, Yuma, and Tucson. According to Killian, the AZDA is now left to play catch-up with potential threats. Not too long ago, we had thousands and thousands of heads of sheep brought into Yuma without any health papers at all, and it created a huge problem. That had been going on for years, and the only reason we didn't know about it is because we didn't have the checkpoints. Killian fears that without the checkpoints and increased funding, threats like tuberculosis, avian flu, hoof and mouth disease, such as greening disease, and more, could arrive in Arizona and could hurt the state's agriculture and its economy. But fears aren't enough to sway lawmakers. We really try to be smart about collecting the right data, being able to put that into a way that the legislators can, can then evaluate this is the right place to make an investment. Doesn't always work in really dire times. And I've been there and I have great empathy for Director Killian because so, he cares so much about ag and protecting agriculture. That's Karen Ross, Secretary of California's Department of Food and Agriculture. While Arizona farms raked in almost $4 billion in 2021, California's rang in a whopping $51 billion. California leads the nation in agricultural revenue and makes it a priority to protect this lucrative industry. Arizona, with less revenue and other legislative concerns, is left with the reactive approach Killian so strongly bemoans. And he's not alone, even in his desire to reinstate the checkpoints. I would argue that 
uh, for the last 20 years, they've been absolutely necessary for agriculture and that they should have been operated at the borders of Arizona. John Boltz is co-owner of Desert Premium Farms in Yuma and is vice president of the Arizona Farm Bureau. His farm produces crops year-round and trades both locally and internationally, so he's used to navigating policies with production. And he cited an example of how the state's lax approach allowed one threat, the Asian citrus psyllid, to harm the state's farmers, consumers, and one of its iconic five Cs. Uh, finding the psyllid here in Yuma uh, presented some unique things. It meant that then uh, movement of citrus produced uh, citrus stock, uh, nursery stock of citrus type uh, or related type plants couldn't move about. So tremendously impacted uh, some friends of mine that have a, a citrus uh, nursery here in Yuma County. But Boltz understands why the state must balance economic priorities. So it's the tug of war of that realm of understanding of our natural world and our commercial activities and private activities balanced against how much money can government spend. You know, we don't have an infinite supply of money to spend. And so I think Arizona has been more leaning towards the fiscal conservative side a little too much and has put a number of things at risk that are in that category of you don't know what you got until it's gone. Back with the AZDA. Killian is optimistic about the future. In January, Arizona's politics will switch up as a new administration and new lawmakers take their seats. And Killian hopes Arizona's ag policies will be one topic they'll address. Christina Van Otterloo, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this question came to us from a listener through our reporting project Q&AZ. You can ask your own question at qaz.kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News. The United States government sued Arizona Governor Doug Ducey and the state on Wednesday over the placement of shipping containers as a makeshift wall on the border with Mexico. Greg Haney has more. The complaint filed in the U.S. District Court comes just three weeks before Republican Governor Doug Ducey steps down and Democratic Governor-elect Katie Hobbs takes the office. She has opposed the construction of the temporary barrier, calling the move a political stunt. Earlier this week, Ducey told U.S. officials that Arizona is ready to help remove the containers, but that he also wants the federal government to fill the remaining gaps in the permanent border wall. Construction of the $95 million project placing 3,000 shipping containers as a wall is about a third of the way complete, but protests have slowed work in recent days. Greg Haney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. The Soapbox series continues from the show with the next installment of Eating Christmas. Today's story takes place in a Paris apartment. Here's De- Deborah Sussman. The days between Christmas and New Year's always feel outside of time. Like whatever takes place during those days isn't subject to the laws that apply during all the other months. It was during this suspended stretch of days that I found myself in an apartment in Paris with a man I'll call for the sake of brevity and privacy, M. He was a fellow grad student in the writing program. We were both Americans who loved Paris. I wasn't supposed to be there. I was the one who'd driven him to the airport just before Christmas and sent him off to see his sister in France. But he'd called me a few days after he arrived and asked me to come. Why had he asked me to come, you wonder? So did I. I knew he'd been having a tough time, but that was true for a lot of us in the grad program. We were a bunch of writers, dancing with our demons and our ghosts. Maybe his were stronger. 
He and I were friends with a clear mutual attraction, but he was the kind of brooding, charismatic former jock who could spark mutual attraction in a piece of furniture. So I suspected I wasn't that special, even as much as I wanted to be special. I think I thought I could help him. I think he thought so, too. I asked our mutual friend Alec, also a writer in the program, but surprisingly well-adjusted, what to do. He said I should go, because I'd never had my heart broken. Flights were cheap. It was Paris. And besides, my beloved father had just had successful surgery for prostate cancer. The universe seemed to be saying, Carpe diem. The apartment where M was staying belonged to a friend of his sister's who was away, and it was much nicer than I'd expected. It had high ceilings and tasteful artwork on the walls. For dinner the first night, we ate riette au porc, which I'd never tried before, and fresh baguette. If you haven't tried riette either, it's like pâté but less fussy. You scoop it out from the container, fat and meat together and spread it on bread or crackers. It's decadent, satisfying, and relatively cheap. M seemed ambivalent about my having come, which was puzzling, because why would you ask someone to fly thousands of miles only to not really talk to them and not want to go anywhere? Standing in front of the bathroom mirror in the beautiful Paris apartment, I took a picture of myself, a selfie, only with a film camera, so I didn't know what it looked like until I got home and had it developed. In the resulting photograph, my face is sullen. I'm wearing a corn-colored yellow turtleneck sweater that I remember as slightly itchy, and oversized tortoiseshell glasses I thought were stylish, but now realize gave me the air of an insect librarian. I'm asking myself, what am I doing here? I'm asking myself, who am I? Looking back, Alec was probably right when he said I hadn't had my heart broken. But the world would take care of that. Within three years, my beloved father would die. When it became clear that he would not survive the cancer, he said to my mother, I'll never see Paris again. It turns out, There are so many different kinds of injuries and insults the heart can sustain. There's a saying that goes, God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. I stand before you today, open-hearted, and wish you many delicious mistakes. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news... This week marks two years since the U.S. began distributing and administering COVID vaccines. A new study estimates how much worse the pandemic might have been without them. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. A computer modeling-based study by the Commonwealth Fund suggests that vaccines have reduced COVID's potential death toll by more than 3 million, reduced medical costs by $1 trillion, and kept kids in school longer. Without vaccines, the country would have seen 1.5 times more infections and nearly four times more hospitalizations since December 2020, increasing the odds of long COVID and of reinfections, which have a higher risk of death. 
even in evasive variants like Omicron, vaccines blunted disease severity, lessening the burden on hospitals even as high rates of flu and RSV now strain the healthcare system. Nicholas Skirbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news. More than two dozen Arizona leaders in politics, business, and education want Senator Kirsten Sinema to move forward on a framework deal to provide a pathway to citizenship to some undocumented people brought to the U.S. as kids, known as dreamers. But as Elisa Resnick reports, it's not a bill just yet. The group includes leaders from Arizona universities, along with politicians like Mesa Mayor John Giles. In a letter sent to Cinema, they say almost 10,000 dreamers are pursuing higher education in Arizona and argue giving them legal status in the U.S. makes economic sense. They also say Arizona's passage of Prop 308, which gives in-state tuition to undocumented graduates, shows bipartisan efforts can work. Cinema's framework could provide a pathway to citizenship for some 2 million dreamers, but it also seeks to extend asylum restrictions at the border and give more funding to border security. It must become a formal bill and make it to the floor for a vote during the lame duck session. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And finally, in tribal resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Although big water projects, such as dams, are front and center when Arizona cities talk about their water supply, the state's wildlife relies on natural sources like springs. A nonprofit is doing a survey on springs in the southern Arizona area known as Sky Island Country. Ron Dungan has more. Southern Arizona is known for patches of high-elevation mountains that rise up out of the desert. They're called Sky Islands, and they're home to some of the state's unique species of birds and other wildlife. For the last couple of years, the Sky Island Alliance has enlisted volunteers who visited southern Arizona to enter data and springs in the area. Sarah Truby is with the Alliance. She says the survey can help identify water sources that need restoration. So that's a lot of opportunities to work with landowners to fence off the spring source, but then provide a water source for the cattle by diverting a little bit of that water. She says the region may have as many as 4,000 springs. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.